0: Hello and welcome to the Dogwood podcast. My name is Lisa Sammartino, and I'm the democracy campaigner at BC's largest citizen engagement nonprofit, Dogwood. What an exciting time to be interested in democracy. Last week, we saw roller coaster local elections in many parts of the province with incredible voter turnout in some places. And with no rest for the weary, just like that, British Columbians are launched into a referendum on proportional representation ballots should be arriving in your mailbox shortly if they haven't already. But long before the referendum started, there were groups already getting their messages out about which way you should vote. You've probably seen the ads for the no side. Fascists marching into BC's legislature, claims that pro-rep will actually make you have less representation, not more, and that it'll isolate rural voters. Well, these aren't true. I'm a big believer in pro-rep, as is Seth Klein, the director for the BC Wing of the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. This past week, Seth held a webinar to dispute the outrageous claims of the no-side. He also talked about what proportional representation is, and he explained the three types for pro-rep on the ballot. And we thought it was so useful that we have taken the audio from that presentation for our podcast this month. We hope you find it useful, too. Here is Seth Klein making the case for pro-rep.
1: Well, hello everyone. Uh, nice to be with you. I, I, I should uh, warn you I'm nursing a bit of a, a cough, so hopefully, uh, hopefully that won't uh, take over at any point. As, uh, I'm really happy to be with you. I'm, I'm planning on walking you through a presentation for about 30 minutes uh, on the case for ProRep. Uh, I hope it's going to be useful to you and then we'll, we'll open it up to questions. Many of you who, uh, who are joining us, I gather, are doing canvassing around the province. I think that's so great. I'm so grateful to everyone who's working on this, and um, I know you're encountering different oppositional points and that kind of thing, so I hope this is gonna be helpful for you. Um, I have been passionate about pro rep since I was a teenager in high school. Uh, I was a little odd as a teenager in high school, Um, but it has long been my view that this, this issue, this referendum, is really uh, an historic opportunity to strengthen our democracy, to improve policy making, to just blow open the scope of what's possible in our politics and when I have to say in a sentence what it is that's at the root of pro-rep, it's fundamentally about liberating us all to vote our values Um, and uh, I hope that that this referendum is an opportunity that we're not going to let slip away. Um, I want to walk you through uh, why, first of all, is our current voting system so messed up? Secondly, how would switching to pro-rep fix uh, the problems in our democracy? Uh, then, I'll, then then we'll switch gears and we'll walk through what's actually on the ballot that's arriving in people's homes. And then I'll do a little walkthrough of the three reform options that are on the ballot. And then we can switch gears and start talking about how we actually win this thing. First of all, why is our current voting system... First past the post, so messed up. Well, uh, there's exhibit A, my friends, sorry to do that to you. Um, uh, but you know the, the interesting thing is when we think about um, uh, first past the post, and we think it's the norm elsewhere, it isn't, it's actually the exception. There's very few major democracies that still use exclusively first past the post. There's the US, there's the UK, uh, India and Pakistan, a few other smaller former British colonies, and there's us. And look at the record. Um, You know, Trump lost the popular vote to Hillary Clinton, but he's in the White House, and these alt-right elements live in the White House with him. Look at the most recent Indian election, which elected Modi and the BJP. This is a far-right Hindu nationalist party uh, that won government with 31% of the vote. Uh, Exhibit uh, B would be uh, the most recent uh, Ontario example. Uh, uh, where Doug Ford and the Conservatives, with 40% of the vote, uh, won 61% of the seats, and 100% of the political power. Um, uh, or Francois Legault, uh, more recently than that, uh, and the CAQ in Quebec, again, they won government with 38% of the vote a few weeks ago, uh, running on, on an anti-immigrant program. Um, and so the point here is, is this concept of false majorities over and over again, that first past the post doesn't just help anti-immigrant or right-wing parties win seats, sometimes it grants them outright government. Uh, And a court check on the power of these false-majority governments is supposed to be the courts, and yet with both Doug Ford and Francois Legault, they've both indicated their willingness to invoke the Notwithstanding Clause to override uh, the Constitution, and in the case of Legault, specifically to mass fire religious minorities from the public service and mass expel ethnic minorities from the province. Um, this isn't just a esoteric thing. This is happening now in our own country. Uh, this is just a walkthrough of the, of the recent Ontario results back in June. This is the breakdown of the proportional vote. Doug Ford and the Conservatives won 40% of the vote, the NDP about a third, the Liberals a little less than 20%, the Greens a little less than five. But then you see how it uh, broke down by seats, where the Conservatives get 61% of the seats. The NDP got about their proportional share, but the Greens and the Liberals much less. There's a picture of Francois Legault. Um, This is the last federal election, uh, where the Trudeau government also won less than 40% of the vote. Uh, but has 55% of the seats and 100% of the political power, by which we mean for four years he gets to decide with impunity which uh, promises he's going to keep and which he's going to break. Um, but I want to come back to a second to uh, the Ontario election back in June because I remember listening to a lot of the you know, radio punditry the next weekend and what I heard over and over again was Ontarians voted for tax cuts. But in fact they didn't. A majority of Ontarians voted for precisely the opposite, but it was split between three opposition parties. And so in addition to false majorities, a problem with First Past the Post is that it tells false narratives about who we are and our values and what's important to us. And you see really that play out in the political map of British Columbia, where the NDP win almost all of the seats on the coast. The Liberals win almost all the seats in the interior. And we tell this story about people in the interior, which is that they're really right wing and very individualistic, and it's not true. Half of the people in the interior didn't vote for that. Um, uh, But but our system produces this false story about us. I want to walk you through some recent BC electoral history. First of all, the, the problem of false majorities cuts both ways. Back in 1996, the NDP actually lost the popular vote to the Liberals. Uh, but then uh, the Liberal vote wasn't as efficiently distributed, as they say, and so the NDP won a false majority. 2001 is an interesting one. I want to pause on that uh, because it wasn't a false majority, although it was a very distorted majority. 2001 is the only time in half a century that a governing party won an outright majority of the popular vote. That year, Gordon Campbell won 57% of the popular vote. But those of you old enough will remember what happened, which is that it was a wipeout. He won every seat in the legislature except two in East Vancouver. The NDP lost official party status. That's not healthy in a democracy. You want Her, Her Majesty's loyal opposition to be able to do its job of holding the government to account. But I want to say something else about 2001 because I've been debating people on the no side a lot in the last couple of months. And one of the arguments that they make is, oh, we need to keep first past the post because it's so important for local representation, to sustain local representation. Well, some of you will remember that after Campbell won in 2001, uh, he then set a motion, a three-year period of intense cutbacks. 200-plus schools were closed around the province. There were cuts to welfare and children and families and environment. And I spent a lot of time traveling around the province in those three years. And over and over again, I used to hear the same story. Uh, My MLA has locked their office and won't take a meeting. Um, So it didn't matter in those years. If you had an MLA with an office uh, right down the street, you didn't have a local representative. Then moving on to 2005, 2009, 2013, we get more liberal false majorities, it's the norm. But here's another fundamental problem with First Past the Post, and it's the problem of strategic voting. Strategic voting means not voting your values. Effectively, our elections become this horse race between two parties and the bandwidth of choice and discourse is narrowed, and we feel forced to vote strategically not for what we most want, but against whom we most fear or dislike. Um, How many of you have done this in the past? and you know what it feels like, it feels awful. Um, But we don't have real choice in our system. If you're a free market oriented person but you're frustrated with the BC Liberals in our system, uh, you got nowhere to go except to hold your nose or opt out. And if you are a, a lefty voter but you're frustrated with the NDP, you've got nowhere to go but suck it up or sit it out. First past the post limits real competition. In fact, I'm convinced that a big reason why the no side is being led by these party apparatchiks on both sides, the Liberals and the NDP, is because the system works for them. They're able to effectively control our politics and are able to say to everyone on their side of the political spectrum, who may have some dissenting opinions, to basically shut up and line up. Um, but our ideas and our values are more diverse than that. Another problem with the first-past-the-post is the problem of what we call wasted votes. And it plays out in a couple of ways. First of all, most of us live in safe ridings where the outcome is a foregone conclusion. So a lot of people feel like, why bother voting? And it's frankly hard to blame them. But also consider this. In the the last B.C. election, a little over a year ago, of the 1.9 million votes that were cast, about half, 49%, in fact, went towards losing candidates. And the next day those votes evaporate. I am convinced that we can come up with an electoral system where that doesn't happen, where all of our votes find their desired political expression. Now, I'm a policy guy, so from a policy point of view, there's another problem with first pass the post, and it's a problem of what we call policy lurch, which is that as power and false majorities swing back and forth between false majority governments, Um, Basically, each government spends a chunk of its time undoing the policies of the past government. So you see that now with Ford undoing Wynne's policies or or Trump undoing Obama. It's inefficient, it's bad for business. I mean, imagine if you're a green energy person or a green business person in Ontario and you've invested millions of dollars only to have the Ford government completely undo the policy environment on which your business was based. But this isn't, you know, just some esoteric concern. if, like so many of you, um, uh, you know, we were freaked out by the report, the latest report from the International Panel on Climate Change a couple of weeks ago warning us that we had 12 years to dramatically reduce our GHG emissions. The point about policy lurch is, basically, we don't have time for this BS.. The climate is telling us that uh, time and progress is of the essence. All told. Uh, I think when you look at what I just walked you through, um, uh, first past the post is actually having a very harmful effect on our faith in democracy. And, and that disillusionment is reflected in this long-term downward trend uh, in, in voter participation. Canada ranks 26th out of 24 countries in the OECD when it comes to voter turnout. So I'm convinced uh, that uh, we can do better than this antiquated uh, system that we have. I'm stealing some slides here from this uh, BC Youth for PR group, uh, mostly done by this 16-year-old kid on Salt Spring Island. So having walked you through the problems with First Past the Post, how would moving to a system of proportional representation fix uh, what ails us? So first of all, what is proportional representation? Uh, It's important to appreciate that proportional representation isn't an electoral system, it's a principle. Um, There's many forms of proportional representation, that's why we have three of them on our ballot. But they all have in common this. Very simply, uh, whatever a party's share of the popular vote is reflected in the distribution of seats. If you get 30% of the vote, you get 30% of the seats. 40% of the vote, 40% of the seats. It's stable because the the governments that we get under pro-rep have to cobble together majority support Uh, and you avoid the policy lurch problem that I was just uh, walking you through. And it's successful. Uh, Nine out of ten top economies in the OECD uh, use some form of pro-rep. Under pro-rep we almost always get minority outcomes. I actually think that's great. I like minority governments. It forces cooperation because parties have to put together governing alliances or coalitions that in combination reflect the majority of voters. And if you want to know what that looks like, it looks like what we have now in British Columbia and the confidence and supply agreement between the NDP and the Greens, spelled out in black and white. There's this common argument that we hear against pro-rep, which is that it produces unstable governments that can't get anything done. And it's simply not true. Uh, Some of our nation's most popular and long-lasting policies, the the Canada Pension Plan, old age security, uh, Medicare itself, are all the product of minority federal governments. And today in BC, under this minority government, we've seen them introduce public childcare, the first major new social program of a generation. We've seen them introduce progressive property taxes for the first time in North America. So they're clearly able to introduce uh, bold new policies. On a related front though, these, uh, I think these minority governments are also more accountable. I would actually contend that under the current BC minority government, the Greens are holding the NDP more to account for their own promises than if the NDP had won a majority outright. We have a government that has to continually win majority support and not govern with impunity. We just saw a taste of that this past week where the NDP made adjustments to the speculation tax uh, because of amendments from the Greens. But it's deeper than that. If you only need 40% of the vote to secure outright power, you don't need to concern yourself with the other 60. And, uh, you know, if you want to know what that means, at the CCPA, my my files over the years have mostly been in the area of poverty reduction and welfare. And often I ask myself, like, why did the last government stubbornly refuse to adopt a poverty reduction plan for so many years? Why were they content to leave welfare rates frozen for 10 years? Why did they drag their heels for so long on the housing affordability crisis? And it's a bit cynical, I know, but I'm afraid to say, I think the answer is they made a calculation that the people most impacted and affected by those policies weren't part of their 40 percent. But when every vote counts, every vote matters. What we also know from a policy point of view is that, uh, and the evidence is very clear on this, is that pro-rep countries produce better policy and have uh, quote, more caring and gentle societies, to, to quote Arndt Leipart, who's one of the foremost global authorities on comparative political systems. We know from the research comparing pro-rep countries to majoritarian countries like ours is that the pro-rep countries have less income inequality, and the, the, it is highly, that is highly statistically significant. We know that uh, they have stronger environmental policies. Their share of global GHGs are going down. Um, Pro-rep countries garner higher scores on the UN index of human development, incorporating health, education, and quality of uh, standard of living indicators. Overall, the empirical research across the OECD, the major industrialized countries, shows that the pro-rep countries outperform winner-take-all or majoritarian systems like ours on measures of democracy, quality of life, income inequality, diversity among elected officials, Uh, values of tolerance, environmental performance, and fiscal policy. We also know from those comparisons uh, that the pro-rep countries produce legislatures that better reflect who we are. They have better gender balance, they have better uh, representation of racialized people, they have better representation um, of indigenous people, and that's because any pro-rep system that's using more than one candidate in a riding a political party would be strategically foolish not to present groups of candidates who, rep- who capture that diversity and so they don't. We also know from those comparisons that uh, the pro-rep countries have higher voter turnout uh, on average about 7 percentage points higher, for young people it's about 12 percentage points higher. So that's my uh, kind of high-level overview comparison of first-past-the-post against uh, pro-rep and how pro-rep would fix the problems that we're facing. I'm going to switch gears now and and look at what's actually in the ballots, on the ballots that people are receiving now. So first of all, there are two questions on the ballot. The first one very simply asks, which system should British Columbia use in its elections? Should we keep the -the first-past-the-post voting system or switch to a system of proportional representation? It's pretty straightforward. Second question asks, if a majority vote to change to pro rep. here are three models of pro rep and it asks us to rank those three models. Now importantly uh, you don't uh, have to answer question two if you don't have an opinion that's fine. I think it takes about half an hour to delve into these uh, systems but if you don't want to take that time uh, you don't have to vote Your, your ballot isn't spoiled and conversely someone could vote to keep first past the post on the first question and still be entitled to an opinion on the second question. I don't think it's that complicated. Here's a slide from Fair Voting uh, BC, uh, what it would look like if, uh, if this was about desserts. Question one would be, what kind of dessert do you want? Something from the old country, like in this case, spotted dick sponge pudding, apparently, or something popular around the world, and if something popular around the world, rank your, your three choices. It's a bit facetious, but uh, there you go. So. I'm gonna walk you through the three options. Let me warn you right now, this is always the point in the presentation where the wind comes out of the room a little bit. It's a bit like homework, so uh, bear with me and I'm gonna do a real quick tour through the three systems. The first one is called dual member. Under dual member, neighboring pairs of ridings would be merged into two member constituencies, so two MLAs in each riding, except for large rural ridings which would be left as they are. The parties would still nominate their candidates, just like they do now, but instead of nominating only one, they would nominate two, a a primary candidate and a secondary candidate. And when you go to the voting booth, instead of voting for only one person, you vote for a team of two people. And the first seat would go in that riding, just like it does now, to the first candidate from the party who had the most votes in that riding. The second seat would be allocated based on the popular vote, so that one gets slightly more complicated. The way the system works is like this. We vote, we allocate all the first seats, and then the system stands back and it says, okay, in order to have a proportional legislature, the Liberals need this many more seats, the NDP needs this many more seats, the Greens need this many more seats, this party needs this many seats, and it looks to see where those parties perform the strongest and allocates the second seat to them. Your ballot under dual member would look something like this. It's actually the simplest of the ballots. It looks mostly like our ballots do now, except the parties have two candidates instead of one. second system is called mixed member. It's used in Germany, it's used in New Zealand. It's mixed because MLAs are, are, are elected in two ways. About 60% of MLAs are elected just like they are now, except the ridings are slightly larger. They're about two-thirds larger. Or if it's helpful to think about it this way, the provincial ridings would grow two-thirds, they'd still be slightly smaller than they are federally. That's a helpful way of thinking about it. But, and they have to get a little larger to make room for the fact that about 40% of the, of the seats would be uh, elected from regional party lists in order to uh, produce a legislature that's proportional to the popular vote. So your ballot under mixed member would look something like this. It would have two questions, the first question is just like now, you choose one candidate from your preferred party uh, for the local riding. But there would also be uh, a regional vote where the parties will have presented lists of candidates and you vote for the party that you want, or if it's an open list, and this remains to be determined after the vote, not only would would you pick which party you want, but you, you would be empowered as the individual voter to say, well, within party B, I most like candidate C, for example. And you'd put uh, an X uh, by your, your choice there. The third system is called rural-urban, and it actually combines two different uh, pro-rep systems. Rural areas would vote using mixed member, which is the system I just showed you. But the majority of us who live in cities or suburbs would vote using STV, or the single transferable vote, that's the same system that the Citizens Assembly on Electoral Reform recommended and that we voted on in 2005 and in 2009. So for those urban ridings, they would be combined into larger ridings that for the most part would, would elect between four and seven MLAs by ranking the candidates. So in this one, you're not just putting an X by a name, but you're actually ranking people. One of the great strengths of this system, of this offering, is that you know, I quite liked STV. I voted for it in 2005 and in 2009, but one of the downsides of STV is that it didn't work great for rural communities because the ridings would have to become too large. And the rural urban model fixes that. It says to those rural ridings, instead of having to become two or three or four times larger, you would only need to become two-thirds larger or you'd, basically you'd still be smaller than a typical uh, federal riding. For those of us who live in urban settings, your ballot would look something like this. This would be, for example, let's say this is a a four MLA riding. Um, The parties would have their selection of candidates, but the individual voter is empowered to rank as many or as few candidates as you want. And notice too, you can mix it up. You could say your first choice is party C, uh, candidate C, but your next choice is from another party. And your next choice after that is an independent. Notably, this is the system that probably works the best in terms of the chances of an independent actually gaining one of those seats. So that's my quick run through of, of uh, the three systems. And I know you'll have more questions on it. But I want to say these, a few things that are true for all three of the systems on offer. Firstly, they are all a huge improvement over what we have now. Secondly, they all produce proportional outcomes that reflect what we actually voted for. Third, I believe they not only preserve but actually enhance local representation. And that's because not only will we still have local MLAs and you'll still have an MLA who's geographically close, but you will also have a nearby MLA uh, who shares your political worldview. Whereas right now, if you're say a lefty voter in the interior, you have to drive for a day to find an MLA who shares your worldview. Fourth, they all improve the diversity of the legislature. Fifth, they all ensure that no region would have fewer MLAs than they have now. Sixth, they're all innovative, made-in-BC models that reflect our unique needs and geography. Seventh, none of them will significantly increase the size of the legislature. That's capped in the regulation at eight more seats. They all include a minimum threshold of five percent, so a party does have to secure five percent of the popular vote in order to get a seat. And if you're still feeling a little nervous or unsure, the Attorney General General has also included this little safeguard, if you will, a little escape clause, which is already embedded in law this week, uh, which is that there will be a second confirmation referendum after two elections if we choose to change the system. This is great in my mind. We get to road test it. It takes the uncertainty out of this, and it um, it, it basically means we get to try it out. Um, But notably, I would point out that no country that has ever switched uh, to PR that I'm aware of has ever chosen uh, to switch back. Once people try it, they like it. Eighty-five percent of developed countries already use some form of PR. Um, And yet, uh, and the no side says it's too complicated. Um, I don't think we're somehow stupider than all these good people. But, you know, one of the things that happens is that given that most democracies use pro-rep, it's fairly easy for people on the no side to cherry-pick examples of some country facing some challenge and try to pin it on the electoral system rather than any number of other factors in play. Um, When we think about far-right extremism, the truth is, and this is why I showed you the example of Trump or Modi or or Doug Ford or Legault off the top, no electoral system has a monopoly on either preventing or fostering far-right parties. And those advancing claims to the contrary are just cherry-picking their examples. When you actually look at where we're seeing, or where we've historically seen the rise of far-right parties, it's, it's not about the electoral system. It's about uh, the policies and inequality and austerity that's in place, and if we're concerned about the rise of the far-right, that's what we should be tackling. Um, I just wanted to show you some of the uh, ads that the No side is putting on Facebook just to get your blood boiling. But this is what we're up against, and I hate to say it, it's proving effective. But they've got Facebook ads like, time to say farewell to your local MLA, your closed office. Pro-rep moves the balance of power to BC, in BC to Vancouver alone. these claims are are completely outrageous. Um, uh, I've just walked you through the examples. On the second one, every MLA under all three systems would remain accountable either to a local riding or to the region. No region loses uh, any MLAs. And and yet more to the point, in the system that we have now, if you're in the interior, whole swaths of the province are frozen out of not just cabinet, but government as a whole. That would never happen under, under these pro rep models. But this is what we're up against. So what can we do to win? And this will segue into some more conversation. First of all, we just need to get Get this front and center, get people out to vote. Make sure they, uh, they grab hold of the ballot that comes in the mail and return it. We need to talk to our friends and our family and coworkers. Uh, one of the things that I think is really important and I would urge people to do it tonight, send a personal email or Facebook post to your whole personal network, your friends and your family and coworkers. You know, don't, don't just share something from another organization, put it in your own words. This vote is on, why do you think it's important? Um, uh, why this matters and and inviting and and urging uh, the people in your universe to join you in voting for change. You can host a talk like this. I'm happy to share this PowerPoint with anyone who wants it. Um, Write letters to the editor, call into the radio shows. There's so much great stuff to share on social media right now. Uh, Donate to the different groups, including Dogwood, that are are involved in the YES campaign. And like all of you are doing on this webinar, volunteer, Canvas join the phone bank efforts. In addition to Dogwood, these are all other groups that are involved in that ground game. But I'll draw your attention to this special, right at the bottom there, to the special webpage we created on our blog, on policynote.ca. It's a bit of a portal, if you will, to everything we've produced on ProRep, but also links to all the other resources, um, great series in the Tai, the Elections BC, Uh, Good videos, I've been doing these debates with Suzanne Anton on the no side and I've posted some of those there um, for your viewing enjoyment. Um, uh, And I'll just conclude with this. There there are so many reasons uh, to vote to change our electoral system um, and to transform our politics really, Um, but ultimately as well. I just think we deserve a democracy where we get to vote for what we want and not strategically against who we most fear. We deserve to be liberated to vote our values and to be, feel safe knowing that our votes aren't gonna be wasted. And under pro-rep, that will be the new normal. And, and to everyone who worries that pro-rep will enable the far right or produces too much uncertainty, I would just say this, and I say this after um, 22 years at the CCPA, traveling around this province a lot, uh, and it's this, uh, trust the values of British Columbians. They are, in the main, are good and progressive and caring. And when we, don't, we can't know exactly what the outcome is going to look like under pro-rep. It's transformative. You can't superimpose the results of a past election onto a new one under pro-rep. But I am convinced that when we liberate British Columbians to vote their values, the outcome is going to serve us.
0: Thank you so much to Seth Klein for lending his ideas to our humble podcast. I learned so much, and I hope you did too. Did we leave anything out? Do you have any questions? Tweet us at DogwoodBC. Message us on Facebook at DogwoodBC. Or send us an email at dogwood at dogwoodbc.ca. If you enjoyed this podcast and thought it was a useful thing to share with your family and friends, you should share it. We would love you to. And if you want to get involved with the Pro Rep campaign by making sure your fellow British Columbians learn about Pro Rep and check that box on the ballot, please volunteer with us. You can sign up at votebc.ca. And uh, when you do that, make sure you check the I want to volunteer box. Folks, I'm not going to lie. It's going to be a long month. This referendum is only beginning, and the misinformation is already being spread, the mud is already being slung. But I know if we stick together and work really hard, we're going to make it through. And at the end of it all, we're going to have a better, stronger, more accountable, and more transparent democracy. The first of its kind in Canada. So it'll all be worth it in the end. That's it for this month. We will see you next time on the Dogwood Podcast.